Well, I'm Tom Patterson. Uh, uh, I'm on the faculty here at the Kennedy School and filling in for Alex Jones, who is probably going through security at the airport right about now as he heads off to Tennessee. Uh, but um, one of the great pleasures of the Shorenstein Center uh, is the Fellows Program uh, and the fact that former fellows from time to time come back, and uh, Eric Cooley is in that category. Uh, and I was telling Eric earlier, right a few minutes ago, about uh, the paper that he did here, the research paper he did as a Shorenstein Center fellow, uh, played a significant role in one of the initiatives we're doing here, uh, making uh, research more readily available to uh, the journalists and uh, for use in their work. Uh, before he came to the Shorenstein Center, uh, Eric was with uh, Fortune and with Time, uh, chief political correspondent at Time. Um, managing editor at Fortune. Was, yeah. Managing editor at Fortune. Uh, he's now with uh, Bloomberg Business Week, and uh, and he has a new book out uh, called The Climate War, uh, which will probably be the definitive book on just why this has been so difficult to achieve uh, in the U.S. And uh, he did a piece of that while he was here at the Shorenstein Center. So, Eric, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. It's it's nice to be back. It's uh, it's. Uh, a place where I uh, I was about midway through uh, the reporting of the climate war when uh, the Shorenstein uh, Center asked me to, to, to come up and um, uh, so I ended up uh, outlining this book uh, in an office right up the hall there with, with huge pieces of butcher paper up on the walls uh, um, and the, the outline came to cover all of the walls of the uh, of the little office by the time I was done so it looked like something out of a beautiful mind um, although my mind is not quite that beautiful, I'm afraid. Um, but it was a beautiful uh, semester, and you guys are fortunate to uh, uh, to be experiencing it now. I had a, a, a great time here, and it's, it's, it's great to be back. Um, the book uh, started back in uh, early 2007 when I could see, or I thought I could see, the uh, debate over climate shifting from the science to politics and economics, in other words, from, from whether climate change was real and the scientists were right to what the heck are we going to do about this. And I wanted to, to understand the, um, the economic argument at the heart of, uh, of the climate debate. Um, and there were a number of things that had just happened at that time that, uh, uh, that led me to believe that the, the country was finally ready to, to step up and begin dealing with this issue at the national level. Of course, California had passed the uh, AB 32, the Global Warming Solutions Act of 2006, which was the first statewide mandatory cap on carbon. The Supreme Court had uh, ruled that the EPA had the obligation to determine whether carbon emissions posed a threat to human health, and if so, an obligation to regulate them. Um, and there was a presidential election brewing in which the, the, the leading candidates um, on both sides of the aisle, um, uh, Hillary Clinton, then the front runner, uh, Barack Obama only just beginning to emerge as a potential uh, rival to Clinton, and John McCain on the Republican side, all were talking about uh, a mandatory declining cap. So at the tail end of the Bush administration, it looked as if uh, when the next uh, 
occupant of the Oval Office came along, uh, the U.S. might be ready to uh, to move on this issue. So I thought, well, uh, I just left Fortune, and I thought I'd, I'd, I'd like to try to embed with as many characters as I can on all sides of this issue and do kind of a narrative, character-driven narrative about the campaign to uh, to get serious about climate at the federal level. In other words, to to pass the first mandatory uh, cap on carbon emissions. And uh, I knew it wasn't a slam dunk, but I had no idea how difficult it was going to turn out to be. Because uh, in those fond uh, pre-Obama moments when people fantasized about the leadership that the president would be able to exert on this issue, um, we didn't uh, we didn't think that that actually a climate war would break out in the West Wing of the of the next Democratic administration, which is what ended up happening. Um, the there was a deep difference of opinion among Obama's uh, advisors about whether or not this was a uh, a winnable issue. Um, and uh, as I reported this out, I sort of got the first glimmers of this when I. Uh, began hearing about meetings from people who had been in the meetings in which uh, Rahm Emanuel had said essentially, uh, you know, we're interested in climate, but it's uh, just one issue and there are other issues, and if we can't move on this, we'll go do something else. Uh, he said success breeds success, and we want to be successful, uh, and we're not going to pursue anything if, if the votes aren't there. And this became sort of a, 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 a self-fulfilling uh, a bit of a catch-22, really, because uh, the votes weren't going to be there unless Obama engaged in a very profound way on this issue, and uh, uh, you know, and he was saying he wasn't going to engage unless the votes were there. So, um, the first time uh, he did engage was uh, in 2009, the uh, the Waxman-Markey climate bill. Uh, Emmanuel uh, had told. Uh, Henry Waxman of California that uh, the, the White House wouldn't get involved unless Waxman could get the thing out of committee. Uh, they didn't think that Waxman could pull it off, but he did find the sweet spot to get that piece of legislation out of the uh, the Energy and, and Commerce Committee, which he chaired. Uh, with the bill coming to the floor, uh, the White House really didn't have any uh, alternative but to whip the vote as hard as they could, and they did jump in. Uh, since it was uh, one of the top three issues, allegedly, for the president, once there was a live bill moving toward the floor of the House, he, he had to engage on it. And for a couple of weeks, he did, in fact, engage, and, and he helped uh, get that bill passed. Uh, after the bill passed, the, um, the proponents of the bill, both inside uh, the, the political system and, and all of the, the activists in the climate community, took a deep breath, <coughs> felt, well, we've really we've won a big victory here. Uh, and they and they got whacked upside the head uh, with a two-by-four that they didn't see coming because uh, they hadn't realized that this was really, the passage in the House was just the beginning of the battle. It wasn't really a, an, an end. Um, you saw an enormous uprising against the idea of cap-and-trade at that time. You saw um, Glenn Beck and, and Rush Limbaugh and other voices on the right uh, pouring out their uh, uh, their view that this would uh, uh, not only destroy the American economy but uh, but sap uh, liberty itself from the American people. Um, maybe I'll share just a, 
a couple of words from Rush on this because it's it's pretty remarkable. Um, this is right before uh, the bill uh, came out of committee when they were introducing it. Uh, Folks, we've got to drive these people out of office. Listen to this. Henry Waxman and Ed Markey are putting the finishing touches on a 648-page global warming and energy bill that will certainly finish off this country. The text of the bill ought to be up soon at a website called globalwarming.org. He turned the org into a derisive grunt, making it sound evil and stupid, like the web address of the orcs in Lord of the Rings. The bill contains everything you'd expect from the Al Gore wish list. I don't know how this thing will not raise energy prices to crippling levels. This is freedom-limiting legislation. It will steal the liberty and freedom that we were born with. What it means is we will all need to pay more. We will need to have less affluent lives. We will need to dial down our prosperity. We will have to give the money to him. The man who speaks to you of sacrifices, speaking of slaves and masters. He intends to be the master. You're the slave. He's talking about Obama there. So the only way that you could possibly counter that kind of assault is if the President of the United States, as the steward of the American economy, spoke to the people, explained why we need to do this, not only for climate security, but also for energy security, national security, and economic security, given the billion dollars a day that we ship overseas for foreign oil. Um, Obama made the argument a piecemeal measure uh, when push came to shove in the fall of 2009, he did not ask Harry Reid to bring a bill to the floor of the Senate. They let uh, Barbara Boxer uh, uh, write a bill that wasn't viable in the Senate. They knew it wasn't going to be viable. They didn't try to, to actually write a bill that could get to 60 votes. Um, uh, after that effort failed, John Kerry, uh, Joe Lieberman, and uh, uh, Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina, teamed up on an on a approach that could have succeeded and actually managed to pick up five Republicans. Uh, but the White House never committed to that effort. Uh, there's a, a, a extremely well-reported piece in The New Yorker a, a couple of weeks ago uh, that, that details that effort. Uh, and, the, and the fact is that the, the White House didn't try to get that bill, uh, the support it needed to bring it to the floor. Uh, they allowed Lindsey Graham to split off the effort. Um, they allowed Harry Reid to, to muse that he would maybe move an immigration bill before he moved an energy and climate bill so that he could curry favor with, uh, with, with uh, Latino voters in Nevada and, um, and then also in Colorado and California, other closed states. Even though there was no immigration bill, uh, they hadn't even begun work on one. Uh, so it really required presidential leadership. The Senate wasn't going to do it on its own. It was too difficult. It's difficult because there are 25 states in this country that get 50% or more of their electricity from coal, and people in those states are concerned. Um, some folks have said to me, well, Eric, you know, isn't it asking too much of the president to think that, um, that he could have led on this difficult issue? We were going into a midterm election. His numbers were down. He was tied up with... Um, with health care reform. And I do think that his decision to move, move health care ahead of uh, climate and energy uh, uh, was the death knell of, uh, of the climate bill in, in 2009 and 10. I do think that even with the, um, uh, with the bill, uh, with the amount of attention and political capital spent on health care, that it would have been possible uh, and certainly should have been tried 
uh, for Obama to go to a, a compromise. The, the, the compromise bill that was attempted in the summer of, of 2010, um, and the New Yorker piece doesn't get into this, but the, uh, the fallback position was we'll leave the petroleum industry and the manufacturing industry out of the bill at first and we'll just focus on the, um, uh, the power generation sector, the electric utilities, and we'll do a cap and trade just of that sector. Um, that's where we have one in place functioning extremely well already for the sulfur dioxide emissions that cause uh, acid rain. Uh, that was put into place by a Republican president, George H.W. Bush. Uh, it was um, passed as part of the Clean Air Act amendments of 1990, began taking effect in 1995, and reduced those emissions way ahead of schedule and way under expected cost. Uh, so it was a huge success, and it was the model that the Environmental Defense Fund and other policy organizations that I write about in the book um, uh, were using the, the proof of concept, if you will, when they went to try to sell the, 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 the carbon cap-and-trade program. Um, Obama didn't get behind the economy-wide attempt, nor did he uh, get behind the, um, uh, the, the sector-based approach. He never embraced any particular approach. And my contention is, is that if he had, um, with the leadership of, of some of the characters in my book, like Jim Rogers, uh, the CEO of Duke Energy, uh, Fred Krupp, the president of EDF, and others who were, who were uh, working incredibly closely with Kerry Graham and Lieberman to try to get a compromise through the Senate, that it may have, that it may have been possible that if you had had that uh, bill teed up, uh, uh, not trying to work out all the details of it in uh, the summer of 2010, but start working on it uh, in the winter after it became clear that, uh, that the economy-wide approach wasn't going to have the votes. I think we might have something to celebrate now instead of uh, uh, being in a position of mourning uh, another defeat. Uh, it, it wouldn't solve the problem. Uh, we can't solve this problem uh, in a stroke. I think you all get that. Uh, but the utility sector is 40% of emissions in the country. Uh, and uh, I think if we're going to get started on this issue, what we need to do first is uh, quiet down the chicken littles who say that any attempt to constrain carbon will, um, uh, will destroy the economy. So I think that it would have been an extremely important uh, first step to put a cap-and-trade system in place uh, and demonstrate that you can do it uh, without doubling or trebling uh, electricity prices, uh, which is uh, what the opponents have been arguing, and which is frankly ridiculous because the, uh, the bills contained safety valves and off-ramps that, uh, that would have brought the carbon price back down long before uh, prices got, uh, electricity prices were able to go up. There were really smart policy mechanisms that I describe in the book that uh, were designed to uh, to contain the impact of uh, rising energy prices on not just consumers, but also on energy uh, intensive industries. And um, uh, and if those didn't work for some reason, there were uh, uh, policies in the bill that, that that would have allowed the the president to just shut the bill down. So the notion that uh, we would have been on a course to destroy the economy was always ridiculous on its face. That said, it was an extremely powerful argument uh, that did help kill climate action. Uh, when the um, uh, when I worked on this, I didn't realize that it was going to turn into kind of a whodunit. Uh, 
kind of a story about um, the folks who had conspired to, to kill uh, climate legislation in this country when the when the window was open. Uh, but it did, in fact, become that, and it became uh, a little bit like Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express because there were a lot of people in on the murder. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, and so, you know, I won't detail them all now, and I want to save a lot of time for, for questions. Um, so let me just um, finish with a couple of minutes on where we go from here. Legislative action is off the table for the foreseeable future. Uh, if the midterm elections go the way uh, they appear to be going, uh, there will be no way to get to 60 votes in the Senate for a uh, climate bill. But that doesn't mean that uh, climate action is off the table. The Environmental Protection Agency is moving ahead with stationary source regulation. That means large power plants and uh, manufacturing facilities. Uh, this will be the great mess, the, the glorious mess is what John Dingell called it, that cap-and-trade was intended to avoid. The whole idea behind uh, having a legislative solution to this problem was to avoid, avoid regulation at the local level, which will trigger litigation uh, around each and every power plant and manufacturing facility. So uh, we're moving out of a failed period, uh, a failed attempt at legislative compromise, and into, I think, a much more contentious period uh, of litigation and regulation where you'll have uh, the utilities and manufacturers suing the EPA over their new regulations. You'll have the environmental advocates suing the uh, private uh, enterprises over their facilities. Um, EDF uh, that I write about in my book has a, uh, for years had a motto, uh, finding the ways that work. It's all about compromise and, and uh, a lot of people inside the organization are telling me that they're going back to their original informal motto, which is, sue the bastards. So I think after a few years of, of that kind of infighting, maybe we'll be ready to get back to uh, the attempt to find legislative compromise. I think it's going to be very important to show that emissions reductions are possible to help shut up the people who say that they're not. Um, and the good news is we have reduced emissions in this country over the last few years. The bad news is most of those reductions have come as a result of the recession. But not all of them. For example, you, <coughs> the state of Texas has reduced emissions uh, because it's brought 10 gigawatts of wind-fired uh, electricity online in the last 10 years. Why did it do that? Well, thanks to a bill that was signed by Governor George W. Bush in 1999, that mandated uh, that the state uh, utilities get a certain percentage of their electricity from clean energy sources. So uh, they didn't do that because Bush was so concerned about climate. They did it because he saw a market. And uh, there are now 30 states that have um, renewable energy standards like Texas is. Um, and so there is an enormous amount of investment going into that sector. Had there been uh, a cap-and-trade bill, I dare, I dare say the amount of investment would have uh, doubled or trebled. Uh, there was uh, billions of dollars sitting on the sidelines waiting to enter the clean energy arena based on the rules of the road being set. Uh, because they weren't set here, a lot of that money is now going to China. Uh, China's clean energy sector is booming. Uh, the U.S. used to be number one in wind, now China is. The U.S. used to be number one in solar, now China is. 
venture capital dollars are flowing into the Chinese clean energy sector uh, at a rate of more than two to one over the U.S. now. In fact, more VC money is going into China than is now going into the U.S. and Europe combined in that space. Um, China's uh, governmental spending in this area is staggering. They're now spending $9 billion a month on clean energy deployment, and they're planning to spend $740 billion with a B over the next 10 years. That's the government of China. Um, a lot of the, uh, the, the, the most serious uh, uh, clean energy projects, like the largest uh, carbon capture and storage plant in the world, are going up in China, and the uh, joint <coughs> ventures to that project are uh, American companies like Duke Energy and Peabody Coal that have JV'd up in China because they're moving ahead much quicker than we are. Their project is called Green Gen. The U.S. has for years had a project on the books called Future Gen that uh, is meant to capture and store its carbon. Uh, people in the industry have taken to calling the U.S. project NeverGen because it doesn't seem to ever get off the ground. Um, so because we haven't been willing to, uh, to cap and price our carbon, we're now um, uh, losing the clean energy race to China. They always had built-in advantages with their low-cost supply chain, um, but we could be competing at a much better level than we are. Um, <coughs> It, it's not over. Uh, the problem's not going away, so the search for solutions can't go away either. Uh, but it ain't going to be happening at the federal legislative level for a while, which makes statewide action, regional action, municipal action, and action inside corporations like IBM, Walmart, and Siemens, which are all doing ex extraordinary work to reduce emissions, uh, more important than ever. Um, so I think that we have now a window to show that um, that private and voluntary initiatives can have an effect. Uh, for years we've been hearing greenwashing uh, uh, messages from big corporations, I think to the point where a lot of people are sick of hearing them. Uh, but a lot of those messages are now becoming true and a lot of those uh, initiatives are actually starting to bear fruit and reduce carbon emissions. 75% of the S&P 500 companies are now recording their uh, carbon footprints uh, declaring it publicly, and a lot of them are now moving across the Rubicon from reporting to actual reduction. So despite the, the, uh, the stasis and the pessimism at the legislative level, there's a lot going on and a, and a lot to be celebrated. Uh, and one hopes that uh, when we get to the next uh, moment in Washington where we can actually just talk about a legislative solution, um, that we will have made some progress in actual admissions reduction and thus change the tenure, tenor excuse me, of the political debate. So with that, I'll shut up and, and listen to you guys a lot. Eric, thank you. The, uh, I mean, some of the White House actions in this area were, were pretty astonishing, actually. I mean, the uh, Obama's statement on offshore drilling in some ways kind of took away a bargaining tool. Uh, mm -hmm. The Democrats were counting on in the Senate, but um, so with the le significant legislative action, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. So, you know that's closed. And that's mm -hmm. not going to happen in the near future. Uh, that Supreme Court decision uh, on the EPA uh, was pretty surprisingly strong in terms of its endorsement of what the EPA can do. Right. So. 
Can you imagine the Obama administration really using that tool in a heavy-handed way? Um, I don't think they will use it in a heavy-handed way. The EPA regs are now at the White House for review, and they've been sitting there for uh, some weeks, and we've been hoping to, to get a look at them. Um, and, um, and the message that's coming out of both the EPA and the, uh, and the White House is that the, the regulations are coming, but they're not going to be heavy-handed. What they're going to be is based on the, um, the new source review uh, model where if you want to make uh, significant improvements in your facility, then you have to invest in uh, emissions reduction technology. They're not going to be forcing every power plant to immediately start capturing uh, and storing its carbon. Uh, that, that wouldn't be possible. A lot of the uh, power plants um, you know, aren't sited properly for CCS. They don't have underground aquifers where you can grab it. Uh, where, where you could store liquefied uh, CO2. The technology isn't ready at that scale yet. The technology does exist, but it needs to be scaled up. Um, so it's going to be a gradual um, uh, rollout of regulation that's not going to bite real hard, real fast. That said, there are already more than 90 uh, law lawsuits filed against the EPA regulations, even before they've appeared. Um, they're, they're clogging up the, the district court in Washington and they're clogging up other state courts. So the, the, the um, uh, some are coming from states like the state of Texas that, uh, that don't want those federal laws uh, coming into their states. Others are coming from, uh, from private uh, uh, industry anticipating the rules that are coming. They're objecting to every aspect of the regulation that's been put forth so far. Even, ironically, the tailoring law that said that they were only going to regulate big, uh, uh, big facilities. Um, and uh, so anything that they do is, is grounds for a lawsuit. And this is what John Dingle, Democrat of Michigan, predicted a few years ago. He said, if you, if you oppose cap and trade and don't do it, you're going to be left with this glorious mess of litigation and, and regulation. And that's where we are. <clears throat> it, um, it remains to be seen. Uh, whether EPA will continue to have the power to do this regulation because there will be an attempt in the new Senate to strip them of that power. Uh, it, may, uh, it may be a standalone resolu resolution or bill, or it may come in the form of an amendment um, uh, or rider to an appropriations bill, daring Obama to veto a last-minute appropriations bill and, in effect, shut down government or strip EPA of the power. Um, so it's going to be a little bit like 1995, uh, when the face-off between between Gingrich and Clinton. Um, the the other big uh, battle is going to be uh, on November 2nd in California, the attempt to roll back AB 32, the the, the climate bill. Uh, there, a couple of Texas oil companies moved in with millions of dollars, uh, bought the signatures to get a ballot proposition on the November ballot. Uh, it looks like that attempt to roll back the climate bill is going to fail, but you never know. So, um, so we're in a kind of a defensive crouch now, uh, uh, far from uh, being in a position to move ahead and exert a leadership role globally, which is, which is what we ought to be doing. Uh, we're trying to avoid going back to sort of pre-2006 days. And I do think there will be a case that goes back to the Supreme Court in the next couple of years if they choose to hear it. Uh, so the Supreme Court, which did surprise people uh, with that decision, uh, may have a chance to revisit it.
little bit more about what the corporations are doing and why, whether that pressure is because uh, they have customers who are pushing it or are they saving money? What's, what's their motive? Well, the, the corporate community, uh, I'm happy to report, is split on this issue. It used to be fairly monolithically opposed to climate action. Um, one of the things that I describe in my book is the rise of an organization called USCAP, the United States Climate Action Partnership, which was a coalition of environmental groups and Fortune 500 companies that was lobbying in favor of, of, a, of a cap on carbon. So General Electric and Alcoa and DuPont and uh, Rio Tinto and even Caterpillar for a while and the big car companies uh, and a bunch of the uh, power generators um, seeing all the things that I talked about at the beginning of, of my chat here, uh, decided they'd rather be um, at the table than on the menu, and, uh, and decided they would get into the negotiation and try to move ahead. And their principles became the foundation of the, of the Waxman-Markey Climate Bill. So, um, uh, so there are uh, a bunch of what I call the pr progressive wing of the Fortune 500 that is pushing to you know, to move ahead, and they talk about the the job benefits uh, and the and the necessity of of uh, moving into the 21st century economy and uh, competing with the Chinese, and not legislating via rearview mirror, trying to save 20th century manufacturing jobs that have in most cases already left this country, uh, and, and in that attempt, uh, losing the ability to to, um, to dominate the the industries of the 21st century. So a lot of folks get it, and that's why 75% of the S&P 500 is now counting its carbon. Um, but there are very powerful interests that have decided it's not yet time to, to, to play this out, that they can still delay this. Uh, and that's some of the coal companies, the oil companies, some of whom, like BP, resigned from U.S. CAP uh, and, uh, and became obstructionists again once they saw that uh, it, it wasn't going to be... Uh, uh, as easy to get this done in the Senate as it had been in the House, and believe me, it was no picnic there. Um, the uh, uh, so the so the oil industry, the manufacturing industry, um, the led by the National Association of Manufacturers, uh, and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the most powerful business lobby in the country, have all remained steadfastly opposed, even though people inside the chamber have been splitting off uh, because of its opposition. And in the last days of negotiation in the Senate, the chamber actually began making some pretty positive noises. Um, but again, the, the, the president didn't get to the table there. Uh, everything was in place but presidential leadership. And we, even, even despite the difficulties, the lack of uh, political capital and the uh, what I haven't even talked about at all, the, the continuing um, uh, influence of the, what I call the professional deniers, the people who are paid often by the oil companies but also by others, to spread doubt and confusion about this issue, both the science and the economics. Um, and they've been a very important factor over the last couple of years. Um, even with all that, the business community was divided enough that we, that we might have made progress on this if we had had presidential leadership. In the absence of that, there just weren't enough businesses on the pro side of the ledger to counteract all the ones that were still saying no. So we almost got there, but not quite. Please. 
Yeah. Oh, um, <coughs> you mentioned the uh, the possibility that states might still move forward with uh, with um, climate legislation. Given that in a lot of states, the first mover advantage, well, let's be first, so when the feds have a program, all the investment will come to our state. Um, given that now it looks like there will be no federal action for uh, the foreseeable future, uh, what then do you see as the chances of a state actually moving forward with Good question. Right now, one of the one of the debates in California is, if we cap our carbon, does that really help our industry, or does that help industries in neighboring states? Uh, are we creating jobs in Montana and Wyoming for for wind producers rather than in California, for example? Are we or are we um, uh, stimulating concentrated solar farms in Arizona and New Mexico? Um, so. Uh, to that end, they're thinking in regional terms. You've got the Western Climate Initiative, which is a bunch of Western states and and, uh, and provinces of Canada that are that are trying to come together around California and and work with California on a cap. Uh, there are a bunch of states that are only have observer status <coughs> in that um, uh, in that effort, and and, and we'll see. Uh, a lot of states were, you know, in California. I, I think. Um, if, if you talk to people off the record, they'll tell you that, that Arnold Schwarzenegger wasn't sure that he would ever actually have to enact his cap. He would pass it. Uh, he would get the, the glory for being a Republican environmental leader. Uh, and then the palace would pass from his lips when the, uh, when the, when the federal cap and trade passed. Um, it, of course, a uh, funny thing happened on the way to the signing ceremony, and we didn't get that done. So. So now California is is, uh, is stuck with it, and to their credit, they're putting their shoulder to the wheel, and they're trying to and they're trying to move ahead, not just with the cap, but they just passed a, uh, a, a clean energy target of 33 percent by 2020, which is extremely aggressive. Um, and and as a reminder, 30 states have those in place, and it's not inconceivable that some form of federal uh, clean energy standard could pass. There are also other things that could happen at the federal level, although a cap won't. Uh, a, a paper came out last week, a, a, a bipartisan effort from the Brookings Institution and the American Enterprise Institute on the right, um, which said what we ought to do is quintuple our uh, uh, federal spending on energy, clean energy, R&D, &D, um, up to about $25 billion a year. Uh, and remember, the Chinese are spending nine billion a month now. So twenty-five billion a year is what they do in three months. Um, uh, so the questions are: Where does the money come from? Um, how do we pay for it in in a uh, uh, in, in an era of uh, of uh, austerity, alleged austerity, and and putative deficit reduction? Um, and one of the things that was uh, uh, most uh, attractive, frankly, about the cap was that it, it provided a revenue stream for investment in clean energy uh, research and development. So absent a cap, how do you pay for the kind of, you know, intense, uh, sustained, and extremely expensive R&D that we quite frankly need if we're going to uh, uh, scale up uh, and get the kind of technological breakthroughs we need to deal with this issue? So. Your question is uh, is an excellent one, and it doesn't have an easy answer. Um, but I think there's enough going on at, at, at various state and regional levels 
that even with a, a modicum of federal action, that could keep things going at the state level. Uh, yeah, does the U.S. have a, a, a structural disadvantage uh, compared to other countries? And playing a little bit of the title of your book, mm -hmm. it, it strikes me that, that a lot of things that happen in the U.S. are being reduced to political dichotomies, right? Every scientific issue and all its complexities is reduced to two sides, yeah. and, and, and climate being a great example. Um, China doesn't have to deal with that, mm -hmm. the two sides. Uh, Europe has the advantage, at least Germany, for instance, has the advantage of having the Green Party every so often, you know, pushing policy in direction. So is, is, there, is there an inherent problem that we're leading a war, an internal war, and that we don't ha haven't realized yet the external pressure that usually creates the internal cohesion Absolutely. that we need? Absolutely. Yeah, it's very well put. Um, uh, there are a lot of reasons that, that uh, the U.S. lags the, the, the rest of the industrialized world on this issue, uh, and our polarized politics is part of them. I mean, the, the basic idea behind my book was uh, to track a group of people who were trying to find out whether a essentially dysfunctional political system could be made to rise to this challenge. And, and the provisional answer here is no. Um, but uh, we, we, know our, we, we know the many ways in which our politics is broken and, and, uh, and how hard it is for us to come together around any issue. This particular issue is a, um, is a real object lesson for that because it has become so polarized because it seems uh, to many people to be abstract and something in the future uh, because um, uh, because the science is complex so you, so people end up choosing proxy spokesmen instead of grappling with the science uh, and trying to figure out to your best of your ability what you think is going on uh, you decide who do I like Al Gore or Rush Limbaugh and that decides your take on this issue so uh, it, it, it has become um, a, uh, a litmus test issue in um, in most of the Republican Party now to be opposed not only to cap and trade but even to the reality of climate science. There is, uh, I believe, only one uh, uh, Republican uh, uh, non-incumbent running in this uh, election uh, who doesn't say flat out that he either doesn't know or doesn't believe uh, in climate science. I just saw this uh, ad on YouTube from a, a guy running in West Virginia who takes out his rifle and, and shoots a target and, and that the last frame of the ad is uh, the target is the cap and trade bill. Um, so he's, uh, he's locking and loading to protect the people of West Virginia from, uh, from cap and trade. So sure, we're focused on um, short-term political dynamics, we're focused on uh, short-term costs. Uh, and we're not e even allowing into the conversation the long-term cost of climate inaction, which is going to be, uh, you know, far in excess of the cost of, of climate action. That the longer we wait to deal with this, the more expensive it becomes to deal with. As you know, we got a taste of of the kinds of costs that will be visited upon us this year with the the floods in Nashville, the floods in Pakistan, the wildfire and drought in Russia that drove up the price of, of, of rice and wheat uh, and corn. Um, so um, uh, we, have, we have failed utterly in our ability to communicate this to the American people. Uh, I don't think the environmental community has bathed itself in glory. I talk about in the book the, the decision that was made um, to seed well, basically, they decided we're not going to debate the science anymore. We're just going to declare the debate settled, and we're going to move on to the solutions. 
and that was about 2007 when the IPCC came out with its fourth r report, uh, which you know did in fact say um, that we we know this is happening. Um, however, that had the uh, uh, the unintended side effect of seeding the messaging field to the skeptics. So the professional deniers seized on that space, uh, and the Union of Concerned Scientists and uh, EDF and Al Gore and, and all those folks basically stopped engaging on that issue, and, and I think it was a big mistake. Um, so a lot of people have made mistakes. I think the idea that we could um, get something this big through Congress by just picking off a few Republican votes was probably always uh, uh, wishful thinking. Uh, but the trouble is you just can't do bipartisan legislation if one of the two parties simply doesn't want to play. Um, so we need to break that, that, that partisan uh, demonization of the issue itself if we're going to move ahead on this. And I'm, I'm hoping after a few years of combat, maybe we'll be ready to do that. <laughs> Sandy. Um, I'm trying to weigh the, with the, the stated um, difficulty of not having federal legislation in what you talked about. Well, if it's all state, then you, then you have everybody already lining up to sue. But on many um, issues like this that have been heated and contentious, what happens is that you see the progress come state by state because you have Californias and a lot of the western states that have been and continue to be way ahead on this and industry coming with them. Mm -hmm. So would you speak a little bit to the relative benefits of states taking action and taking more bolder action than the federal government ever would on an issue like this? as opposed to counting on the federal government at this point to do it all. Oh, absolutely. I think it's, it's, it's just a, a great statement of where we are. A um, couple of points. The, um, <coughs> the renewable energy standard that the U.S. Senate decided was too radical to pass over the summer would have been 10 to 15 percent. Mm -hmm. uh, it would have been so low that um, the, the markets wouldn't even have noticed it. In fact, the the statewide efforts, which are often 30% by 2030, uh, leave it in the dust. So uh, what the Senate was telling us there was that we're not willing to do even the mildest uh, and most ineffectual legislation. Even the stuff that won't make any difference, we won't do, okay? Let alone anything that would actually move the needle. So, um, so until that changes, we only have the states to go by, but as you say, as we know from the automotive industry, if one big state leaves the way, the, um, uh, the industry needs to retool based on that state. So uh, California led the way in, in, in auto emissions, and now it's led the way in carbon emissions. That's why this Proposition 23, which seeks to roll back the, the, the climate legislation in California, is so important. It's the most important environmental vote of the year. Uh, you know, or maybe of the last five, if it if it goes the wrong way, it's going to be a crushing blow to the clean energy industry <coughs> in this country, which is based in California because that bill passed in 2006. Um, so as a result of that bill having passed, according to the California uh, Secretary of State, uh, the state's uh, created somewhere in the neighborhood of half a million jobs in the clean energy sector. Um, we'll, we'll see that number decline if this bill, uh, if this ballot initiative passes. Um, but California is not the only state that's taken action. As I, I mentioned, Texas, Colorado has a 30% renewable energy standard uh, 
a goal by 2030, and they've got a, a very nice clean energy uh, um, uh, industry growing around Boulder. They've got a real corridor there between uh, Denver and the Rockies, and uh, and that's as a result of those bills. So action at the state level does work. Um, and when Vestas had to decide where it wanted to build its huge uh, North American wind factories, it chose Ca Colorado because of those subsidies. It knew it had a market close at hand. Um, and you, we've got 30 states now. We've got REGI, which is the Northeastern Cap and Trade um, uh, Initiative, just in the utilities of the Northeast. We've got the Western Climate Initiative, which is trying to do the same thing in the Northwest. Um, their idea was that they would ultimately link up. Um, a few problems with those, the carbon price is so low you hardly notice it. Um, but in the, you know, it's, it's, it's climate action with training wheels, but I'm in favor of training wheels at this point because we do need to move down the road on any kind of uh, vehicle we can find, even if it's a, a tricycle. Um, <laughs> yeah, please. Yeah, um, Eric, you said that um, we failed utterly to communicate this, which is interesting considering, you know, who you are and that you've written this book. And um, as a journalist who covers this, I'm incredibly frustrated whenever I hear that because I feel like there's an astonishing amount of just terrific journalism around on this topic, and, you know, your book is certainly a great example of that. So I've, I'm just wondering what you, where you think the failure is because, for me, I actually don't think that the failure lies with journalists. I think the failure, I mean, you could equally say that, we failed to communicate evolution. I think the failure sort of comes from the other side pushing back so much that you can't really, you know, there's nothing left you can say. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering where. I mean, do you really think that we as I didn't mean I didn't mean just the journalism community. Uh, I meant I meant the climate action community writ large. The uh, uh, Al Gore's uh, Alliance for Climate Protection, which uh, had the stated goal of trying to create a large mass movement around this issue and. You know, has not. I, I'm a I'm a fan of the vice presidents, and I think I, I shudder to think where we would be without uh, the hundred million dollars a year that he spent trying to move the needle of public opinion. Um, but he has not gotten us to where he he wanted us to go. I don't think uh, journalism can do it alone, uh, which is a good thing because uh, although there is, I agree with you, excellent journalism being done on this. Uh, there's also been a, a bunch of of shoddy journalism. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I think when I, the study that I did for the Shorenstein Center was on the, um, uh, on the press coverage of the, uh, 2008 climate bill in the, in the Senate, uh, and the, uh, I looked specifically at the newspaper and wire service coverage of that, kind of the daily coverage, um, and it was it was tremendously bad. There was good coverage online, uh, um, but the uh, the horse race coverage was a, a perfect example of he said she, she said journalism in the economic argument. It was the advocates say this is going to uh, create jobs. The uh, naysayers say, say it's going to kill the economy. Uh, who's right? We don't know. There's no way to tell. Uh, you know, take your pick. And and it really it it, it didn't get beyond that. And and I'm talking about the, you know, the New York Times and and uh, and the Journal and a lot of mainstream outlets as as well as uh, um, uh, as local papers picking up wire feeds and whatnot. There were uh, isolated instances of excellent reporting uh, in in newspapers. Uh, there was a lot of really deep, fine reporting on the web uh, if you wanted to look for it. 
uh, and there was also a lot of disinformation on the web if you went to the wrong places. So I think at some level, uh, the good and the bad uh, 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 sort of uh, cancel each other out uh, on the uh, uh, in the online stuff. The best climate policy reporting uh, certainly is happening online. It's happening in the blogosphere. Uh, it's it's where the um, the smartest, most nuanced reporting is taking place. Um, so I don't think just the journalists failed, although I think we could have done a much better job than we did. And I and I harbored no illusions that you know that a book is going to change the the math. Uh, although I would I would love it if it did. Um, but I think. Uh, you know, most Americans still get their news from uh, from television, and television this do, this issue does not exist on TV except for um, you know the occasional uh, special about melting glaciers or or something that makes it seem like it's something that's happening far away. Uh, television has not connected the dots between climate change and weather disruption in this country. Uh, nor has it done a good job of telling people where the road we're on is going to lead uh, at the local level, what will happen to, uh, um, you know, the water supply in the, in the southwest or um, the uh, agricultural industry in, in uh, California, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there is great reporting on those subjects, but it doesn't tend to be in the, in the, in the, in the mass part of the journalistic uh, world. So. Uh, I think it needs to get a lot better, and I hope it still will. Um, and I think I don't think there's some magic bullet message that's going to suddenly wake everybody up. Uh, I think one of the mistakes that the climate action advocates, the Green Group, made was in uh, leaving climate science out of the argument. They they had gotten so um, discouraged about their attempts to get uh, climate change and climate impacts communicated to Americans that they basically stopped uh, trying and began just uh, pushing the, the, uh, the clean energy, green jobs message, uh, the energy security message, and I call it in the book the, the Trojan horse approach to climate uh, action, where you, you, you stuff the climate problem into the belly of the beast and you let the lure of green jobs and uh, freedom from foreign oil pull the contraption along, and then the notion is after we passed it, you know, the the climate thing would pop out and, uh, and we'd solve that one too. But um, I don't think you can leave climate change out of the climate argument. I think, I think you've got to argue all three of those things climate simultaneously. Um, and I think the problem is that, you know, Al Gore is an influential guy, but he doesn't have the president's megaphone. I think the voice that was really missing was the president's voice. And even when he gave his Oval Office address after the BP oil spill, and talked about the need to accelerate the transition to clean energy. He didn't say, and we had to do it by capping and pricing carbon and explaining why that was important. He said, he didn't mention the cap, and he said, we don't know precisely how we're going to get there. So at a point when we needed leadership from the government, he, he said, uh, from the president specifically, he said, we don't have a roadmap. And I, that was a moment when hearts sank throughout the climate community because we knew uh, that he just wasn't going to try. Richard, sorry, I'm sorry, I came in late. Uh, you and I talked about carbon trade versus carbon tax when you were here. Any change in your view about their relative merits? And then, second, now that Peter Barnes's ideas in Maria Cantwell's bill, mm -hmm. does the lure of green cash offer a third? Is it just another Trojan horse? Uh, 
strategy? I'm in, I'm in favor of any of it okay. <laughs> that we can do. Anything. Uh, cap and dividend is what is what Richard talking about with the with the Cantwell bill. That's uh, the idea is we take some of the we, we auction the uh, carbon allowances and we give that money back to the people in the form of a rebate per capita rebate, uh, kind of like what Alaska does with oil revenues, and we bribe the American people into supporting this. Um, it has a couple of issues. One, uh, people in different states are going to have different cost impacts from the transition to clean energy. The 25 states that are most coal dependent or have higher costs. So I think you need to give more money to those folks than you do to somebody in Oregon who's already enjoying clean energy from hydropower. Um, and um, and the other problem is if you give all the money back to the American people, you're not left with any money for R&D. So I don't think it's a perfect approach, but if we could pass it, I would. The part that I like is the cap or the price. The rest of it is just politics, right? So I would be totally in favor of a, of a carbon tax. I don't think that's any easier to do than, than a cap. I think it has all of the same political problems that the cap has, except for one, the cap is more complicated and the tax is simpler. So the, uh, the Rube Goldberg stuff uh, that was uh, used as an attack on the cap, um, it would be harder to do on a tax, but um, I would point out that once a tax worked its way through the Senate of the United States, it would no longer be so simple. Uh, so it might be uh, subject, perhaps for good reason, to that same attack. Thanks. You still have a question? You had one earlier. Yeah, I'm yeah. just curious. I'm coming out of the Green Group as an environmental advocate, and um, a lot of the U.S. enviros held their fire on Waxman Markey, save kind of Greenpeace and a couple others, uh, in the hopes that in the future they could get some type of slimmed-down bill. However, it's my sense that there's a lot of uh, bad blood, shall we say, with EDF for having compromised in a failed effort. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious of your thoughts what that means for a future effort down the line, given kind of a fracturing within the U.S. environmental community. Well, there was a fracturing. Um, and in some ways, the, the differences within the Green Group are, um, and the Green Group is the informal association of the, of the national environmental groups. Um, in some ways, it's, it's salutary because you've got uh, groups like EDF and NRDC inside the room. You've got groups like uh, Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth outside the room calling for more and better, hopefully keeping those folks honest inside the room. Um, I, um, uh, there, there is some bad blood. There were places, uh, I know from our reporting, that EDF was not willing to go. Um, and there were compromises that EDF was not willing to make. Uh, so I don't think that they should be reviled as, as being willing to accept any form of compromise. For example, um, when the attempt was made to, to hammer out a, um, uh, a utility-only cap, one of the things that the utilities wanted in return was uh, relief from some of the new sulfur dioxide and mercu mercury regulations that are coming. And EDF, to its credit, was unwilling to trade away conventional uh, pollutants in, in, in order to get carbon, right? So, um, so EDF, in, in my view, is, is willing to go further than some of the other groups are. Um, but it is still highly principled, and um, it. I guess what I would ask the groups who um, uh, who take EDF and NRDC to task for compromising is, um, you know, without uh, a solution hammered out in the center, how are you going to get it done? You know, I I respect the uh, the passion and the. Um, 
and the intensity of the groups on the on the left of the environmental movement. Um, but if we can't if we can't get the first step taken, you know, how are we going to rush down the road in the way that they want to? And I think I'm I have a bias in favor of action and getting started on this. Um, you know, that said, um, there were places where where the Waxman bill uh, bothered me. Some of the um, some of the provisions are uh, are troubling. And I think the missing ingredient there was the president as the representative of the American people saying, yeah, let's have this negotiation, but let's do it publicly, let's put it on C-SPAN, uh, and let's hammer out a deal that, uh, that I can endorse as the steward of the economy and the representative of the people. So, you know, again, when I talk about the need to, to bring the people along, I think the, uh, I don't want to, you know, blame the enviros for not getting it done because, you know, I have enormous respect for for all of them, and I'm in favor of, of every bit of it. I'm in favor of the, the kids, um, you know, who are chaining themselves to bulldozers. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, in, I'm for all of it. I, I, I think it all helps. Um, I'm in favor of, of FOE and, and Greenpeace saying, no, this just isn't good enough. And I'm in favor of the people who are inside the room trying to get something done. I think I think it's all important, um, and we need a lot more of it. I think the, the problem is uh, too many Americans still viewing politics as a spectator sport. And we need people to see it as a participatory sport. Well, we've reached one o'clock. Uh, the climate war. Uh, very cool. Thank you very much. Thanks,